Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. Through 25 seasons. Hey! 4,561 episodes. I believe The Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. When most people think of geishas, I know you're probably like I am. You think of a secret society like the book Memoirs of a Geisha. Did y'all read that? I love that book. But this story has a twist. Well, that book was fiction. This is real. Fiona Graham was born in Australia. She has a PhD from Oxford and now insists on being called her geisha name, which is Sayuki. She is the only white woman to ever become a full-fledged geisha in Japan. And we sent who else but Lisa Ling to Tokyo, because she will go anywhere, <laughs> to get her unusual yet fascinating story. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. As Sayuki shows me around Tokyo, she tells me all about her life as a modern-day geisha. There used to be 42 geisha districts in Tokyo alone. And now how so, many are there? Uh, there's six in Tokyo, yeah. Sayuki's journey into this mysterious world began while she was filming a documentary about geishas. She says the only way to capture the true essence of a geisha was to become one. So you got a PhD from Oxford in anthropology. Yes. Do you at all feel like you've wasted your education because you are <laughs> working as a geisha? No, absolutely not. For centuries, geishas were highly paid companions to elite wealthy men. Geishas endured years of elaborate training. Some started in childhood. Their duties were performed with graceful precision, playing music, serving tea, dancing, and charming conversation. Have you ever been asked to do anything that you don't want to do? As a geisha? Absolutely not. Because you know the perception is that geishas engage in prostitution if the price is right. Oh, that's absolutely, absolutely um, ridiculous. 
Today, geishas still perform, mostly for businessmen and tourists. We've heard about how rigorous training to become a geisha is. Some say it's akin to becoming a doctor. Can you give <laughs> us a sense of why it is so difficult? Well, geisha means artist. So to become a geisha is to become an artist. I mean, everybody knows that to become a ballet dancer takes an incredible amount of training. Um, and obviously, a geisha is the same. No other white woman has ever been a geisha, so Sayuki had to spend an intense year training under the watchful eye of her geisha mother. In the beginning, you have to do everything that your geisha mother tells you because you have no judgment at all for years. At what point mm. do you attain judgment? Uh, I think it, <laughs> it takes years to really get a very good judgment. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org. This is the Geisha Office of the Saxe, and on the board over here are the names of all the Geisha and the tea houses and which Geisha are going out to which tea houses tonight. And how so, is that determined? Uh, sometimes the tea house owners call the Geisha, sometimes it's the Geisha's own customers who contact the Geisha, and sometimes people call the Geisha Office. But um, there's new ways of doing things. People can contact me through my website, and a lot of people do that. The mo modern geisha booking. Modern huh? geisha. <laughs> and can yeah. you give us a sense of what the charge is for geishas? Uh, it's around um, uh, $350 for a minimum engagement. Mm. Much of Sayuki's income goes to buy very expensive hand-woven kimonos. Hello, ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがと
Um, geisha are women like any other women. So they fall in love and they might have affairs, but it's never, ever part of the job. I don't think anyone accuses Hollywood actresses of being prostitutes because they have affairs every now and again. No, but is the purpose of being the geisha to specifically entertain the men, entertain and delight in some way? Well, geisha means artist, literally, uh -huh. and it's a kind of private entertainment um, of the kind that might have happened in the days of Bach or Mozart, who would have yes. been called out by nobility to entertain. And geisha entertain customers, not just men, customers. Why are, why are geishas then so alluring to, uh, to, to the Japanese people and obviously people all over the world? I think a geisha is a, the Japanese ideal of um, the perfect um, woman in many ways. And it's a kind of makeup and kimono. It's been perfected over 400 years. And it is breathtakingly beautiful to see a geisha in full regalia for the first time. And so you dance and you pour tea, is that it? Uh, usually alcohol, <laughs> not just tea. I think there'd be a few upset geisha if it was just tea. <laughs> just tea. The Japanese word geisha means a person of the arts, and for nearly 400 years, it was a highly coveted life for Japanese women. Geishas entertain the richest and most powerful men in Japan. To become a geisha meant years of intense training in the quest for artistic beauty. Elaborate hairstyles, exquisite kimonos, white makeup with dark red lips, geishas were the embodiment of the most alluring Japanese woman. They were valued for their charm and intelligence, musical talent, and graceful dancing. Geishas adhere to a strict code, no marriage, no eating in public, and a geisha never reveals her true age. 100 years ago, there were 80,000 geishas in Japan. Today, about 2,000 geishas uphold the strict traditions of this unchanged and fascinating world. Australia-born Sayuki is the only white geisha in the world. Lisa Ling traveled to Tokyo to meet the outsider who was able to penetrate this 400-year-old secret society. It took Sayuki three years of strict training to master this traditional Japanese art form. Sayuki joins us from her home in Tokyo. Uh, is it painful for you to sit on your legs like that? In the beginning, it was, it was very hard. Um, geisha don't use cushions, so your legs can become numb pretty quickly. So when you're in training, is there a way to pour tea? <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, it's like it, there's tea training, pouring training for <laughs> learning to pour tea. <laughs> is there a way to do it that really just makes a man want, want you? <laughs> the way you are pouring that tea. Uh, well, tea ceremony is a whole art in itself. It's really all about the art. Um, you need to be able to perform and perform very, very well in something. So is there, could you bow for us? Is there a certain, like, way you're supposed to bow? <laughs> Put your hands like this, yeah. fingers together, and straight back. And straight back. And you would do that regularly? Oh, every time I greet my older sisters. Really? What Sayuki's done is actually quite, quite 
incredible because she not only is navigating in Japan. Right. It's the most, one of the most hyper-modern futuristic cities in the world, but she's existing in 17th century Japan. Uh, and it's pretty, pretty extraordinary that she's able to do that. Well, while she was in Tokyo, Lisa followed Tsuyuki to one of her paid engagements. Let's watch what happens there. So in the same way an athlete might prepare for a game, Sayuki is here at the geisha offices practicing her instrument in preparation for the banquet tonight. Sayuki has actually asked us to be very quiet because she's concentrating and she doesn't want us to see her too much before she is in her geisha attire because that might ruin the mystique of it. It takes a kimono expert to get Sayuki ready. This man has been dressing geishas for almost 50 years. How many layers are there, Sayuki? Uh, about four. There's a double lining for the winter. And I notice you have black contact lenses on. I do. The very black hair and black eyes look best together. This is an outfit that was evolved to make Japanese women look beautiful. Do you ever get nervous? Of course. It's kind of like going on stage. So. You hope it's going to be a good evening and that the guests are going to enjoy themselves. So Sayuki and the other geishas are rehearsing for the, the big event tonight. And this is a, a, a tradition that's been going on in Japan for centuries. Sayuki and five other geishas were hired to perform at this banquet. <laughs> Parties like this give Sayuki the exposure she wants to become one of Tokyo's top geishas. The performance is like stepping back in time, with songs and dances dating back hundreds of years. <laughs> the guests want pictures. Sayuki hopes these happy clients will lead to more business. Wow. So do you always travel by rickshaw? <laughs> I, I usually travel by rickshaw around the geisha district and from my house, yes. So how long will you be a geisha? Will you do this for a while and then move on to whatever the next calling is for you? Um, this project really became a lot more serious and I'm really enjoying being a geisha. And I'm doing a lot of modern things as well, appearing on television. And I haven't yet, but other geisha have appeared even in commercials recently. Well, it's just been a delight getting to talk to you. And uh, you can get up off your knees because my knees are hurting just watching you <laughs> do that. Really. Well, I would like to say categorically one last time that sex has never been part of a geisha's job. And I really would like to emphasize that. Um, given this opportunity, there's been so many American misconceptions about that. But prostitution was banned in Japan in 1957, and geisha were never included in that ban because Japanese have never made that mistake. So well, I hope thank that you. I can get yeah. that message across. You did. You cleared up a lot for me because I, I understand it's about tea pouring and uh, all the other beautiful things, really. I'm not making light of it. I just I think that's really an exquisite culture, really. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell.
Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. So, with the help of Lisa Ling, we're meeting fascinating people and seeing inside hidden worlds. As I said earlier, Lisa will go almost anywhere. I mean, I, she's been to the Congo, she's been in prison, she was just in um, Tokyo with the geisha. And have you ever thought about what a nun's life is like? Well, we call convents all across the country to see if they would let our cameras in. Most of them told us, no way. One even asked, what is an Oprah Winfrey? Uh, <laughs> that was actually in California. Thank, thank the Lord for the Dominican Sisters of Mary. It's a thriving convent outside of Detroit. They opened up their doors for Lisa Ling, even inviting her to spend the night. How are you? So nice to meet you. Thank you. Hi, sisters. So I guess I can just all call you sisters. I expect to find the sisters deep in prayer. Instead, I find this. And a good hand, sister. <laughs> so, mother, uh, are there TVs on the property? It's yeah, it's very limited. We really don't watch it that much. So to sit down and watch television would be an extreme luxury. I'm struck by how many young women live here, just under 100 nuns. The average age is 26. The youngest is 18. And how long have you been here? I entered when I was 18, right after high school. And your parents were fine with it? Yes and no. Dad had a hard time when like, it became a reality. But he's, he's embarrassingly proud now. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. He is. Why did you want to pursue this life? God wanted me here, and he made it very clear to me how do you know? Like, do you hear a voice or? It's right here. No, he just prompts you. The bell signals the call to nightly prayer. The first 15 minutes are done in complete silence. Then prayers are chanted, followed by a choreographed procession to the altar, from youngest to oldest. So this. This ritual happens every night? Every single night. And so at the end of this, it's silence. And the sisters go and they either study or there's duties to be done. Then we have what is called profound silence at 10. That means absolutely no talking and everyone should be in her cell. So let's go see my cell? Yes. Okay. <laughs> the 100 cells or bedrooms of the convent are cloistered, which means no one from the outside is allowed behind this door. We are the first. I don't see a mirror. No, you won't. We don't really have a lot of things, and that's part of our vow of poverty. And sister, aside from when you go to sleep, mm -hmm. you wear the habit all the time. All the time. The habit is what you're wearing. It's very versatile. We always say it's kind of like a woman's wedding ring. It says, someone loves me, someone has claimed me as his own. And of course, we would say that's Christ. I imagine it's very freeing. We really don't need much, you know. Our time is given to God and to people. 
So the life of a nun means no sex, no possessions, no children, no makeup, no jewelry. Think you could do that? Well, Lisa, did you get a good night's sleep there? I did, I got a great night's sleep and the sisters could not have been more gracious. They were some of the kindest people I've ever encountered and they really welcomed me in. What is so interesting is when the sister said she was gonna show you to your cell, I thought she meant phone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sister Mary Judith is uh, 26 years old and has been at the convent now for five years. So since you were 21, yes, that's came right. in. And Sister Frances Mary says that she got the calling when she was 22. Sister Frances, you're now 26? Yes. So what, explain what the calling was. You know, I believe everybody has a calling on their life, but did you feel, you know, as, as Lisa was saying, uh, a voice or called in your spirit, called how? Well, it's definitely not, a, not an audible voice, mm -hmm. unless someone has a very special gift for that. Mm -hmm. um, but I was dating a wonderful young man, Oprah, and um, he invited me to come and see his sister's profession, actually. And then when I came to her profession mass, something within me changed. So, so the man you were dating, his sister was a sister? Yes. Okay. In my community. Uh -huh. And you went to see her? Yes, her first profession of vows. And you felt something, a stirring I, there? Yes. How did joining a convent ever even like hit your radar? Well, I think for me, uh, when it really did hit my radar, um, I was really at a crisis point in my life. Uh, I had been in college for three years, mm -hmm. and uh, prior to that, I grew up in northern Saskatchewan on an Indian reservation. Uh, so I was encountered a lot of suffering, drugs, a lot of different. Yourself or um, watching other people? I think a little bit of both. Uh -huh. um, in a sense, I mean, you're. When you're young, there is a sense where you, I was looking to be filled uh -huh. and I felt empty. Uh -huh. But it's interesting because I wanted to save the people I saw drowning, but I was drowning myself. Uh -huh. And I was kind of got away from that environment and I was going to college and started feeling very restless. Like, where can I give myself? Okay, I don't want to interrupt. I was just thinking though, lots of people go through that, the crises of their life, difficult times, but they don't become a nun. <laughs> True, I don't think not everybody who goes through crisis point um, is yeah. either A, listening for a voice <laughs> to be called to be a nun, mm -hmm. and B, maybe they're not called to be a nun, mm -hmm. and especially if they're men. Um, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that for me, I felt that God was calling me in the emptiness. And basically, for, he made it very clear to me that if I wanted to be happy, I had to give my whole life to him. And I think a lot of people my age want to give themselves in some direction, and the greatest frustration for people is not knowing where can I give who I am. Okay, so tell me this. At some point though, it's, I understand being in the crisis and feeling like, okay, I need something and I need answers and my life has to be bigger than this. Everybody's had those moments. Mm -hmm. And then you're in the nunnery. Yes. There you are. It's funny, I never really visited or anything or asked a lot of questions before I entered. I right. just, this is it. Now you're there and it. it's eight o'clock silent time. Well, the, I have to say the very first day when I entered, I was like, what did I just do? Uh -huh. And I, I just realized that, okay, this is it. But do you have a period where you can turn back, where you don't have to stay? Yes, yes, we do have. Uh, there's definitely, there's many periods where, I mean, you're, you're in discernment um, for basically, I would say seven years before you make your final vows. So really? you're a postulant, um, and our founders are here, who founded our community. Uh, and that means what, when you're a postulant? When you're a postulant, is the first year when you enter, um, it likes the idea of a postulate it means to ask. And then there's two years where they spend time studying, they make vows, and so the whole period of time would be eight years. 
So we're talking to Sister John Dominic, who's been a nun for nearly 30 years? 30 years, yeah. And a lot of parents are upset when their daughters join. Oh, yes, my mother was very upset. Her idea was that I would be cut off from the world, I'd be brainwashed, and I wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to think for myself. But over time, they begin to see that we become who we are. My personality hasn't changed. I'm still her daughter, and she's my biggest supporter now. I feel like when you enter the convent, if it's your calling, if this is what you're meant to be, you're going to become more yourself over time, more right. free to be who you are. Yeah. There are more than 60,000 Catholic nuns in the United States and 750,000 in the world. Sisters take strict vows, chastity, they can never have sex. Poverty, they do not own possessions. And obedience to God and their church. Nuns believe they are married to Jesus Christ. Some even wear wedding rings. Their traditional clothing is called a habit, a white cap, black veil, and long tunic. They consider this their wedding dress. There are also cloistered nuns who rarely leave the confines of their monastery and pray up to 12 hours a day. Many nuns devote their lives to helping the poorest people on earth. Some sisters choose an independent path. They don't wear a habit, live alone, go to college, and pursue careers. This week, Lisa Ling went inside the walls of a thriving convent in Michigan. So, you know, our society places such, particularly our culture, such value on things and possessions and wealth and sex appeal. Did you just turn those messages off in your head? You know, it was very difficult because our culture is so bombarded, if I can say that, yes. by these images. And it really undermines the dignity of the human person. Yes, I would say. And I really had to weed it out, if you will, slowly. But you did grow up normally, like, oh, going, yes. like going to Target and everything. Oh, yes. I was baptized a Catholic, and then I grew up without God, actually, in my life. Uh-huh. So I had a reversion. What did your boyfriend say? <laughs> well, he was really shocked at first. Mm -hmm. But then again, I mean, he was extremely supportive. And I am so grateful to him and to his parents, who really led me through all the steps and all the crises that I had. And it turns out, like, God takes care of everything, you know, Oprah. And He's going to be ordained a priest the same year I make my final vows. No! Really? Yes. <laughs> that is cool. So, I mean, God takes care of everything. But it, it was a struggle. I mean, we both cried. We, it was hard. Really? We were in love. Like I said, we were going to get married. Do you, do you ever miss the affection of a man? You know, I'm still human, right? Uh-huh. But in community, we have such strong bonds of love, even between the sisters. And of course, Jesus Christ is my spouse. And you know, John 3.16, God is love. Yes. Love incarnate is my spouse. So this all means that this is your wedding dress. I didn't know that till I was doing this show, yeah. that this represents your... Did y'all know that? See? We decided to go in white. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, the, that the nun's habit represents their wedding gown and that you're married to Christ. I did not know that to the show. Well, I have to say that he's a, he's a hard husband to be married to because if something goes wrong in the relationship, I know it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I could ever be this happy. We don't give our sexuality up to some thing or some idea. We give it to a person, right? Like I was saying, to Jesus. 
we give him that beautiful gift that we have of our sexuality. Yeah, a lot of times people will think that we're kind of, we are repressed because we don't have sex or we're not indulging in the same kind of things that most people our age are indulging in. But in a sense, I would almost say that we've reclaimed, I feel like I've reclaimed my sexuality from an oversaturated, sexualized world and that I don't want to be an object. I view my sexuality as a precious thing. Okay, but just, just being honest here, so you don't have like sexual urgings or sexual feelings or? It's an integrated part in who we are and it expresses a part of who we are. It is not all that we are. And just like all urgings that we don't indulge, just because I had this desire for chocolate all the time, doesn't mean I'm gonna have to eat chocolate every time. And not eating chocolate is not gonna make me like some kind of crazy person who's repressed. Uh -huh. it's, using those desires, the same desires I have for a greater calling and for a greater cause. Okay, I, I get that. It's good using chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so after spending the night at the convent, Lisa got up with the nuns at five in the morning. One of the founders of the <laughs> convent, Sister Joseph uh, Andrew, was her tour guide. Sisters convene in the chapel at 520, so. At the convent, all meals are eaten in silence. There's no time to linger at breakfast. Everyone has a job to do. Ian, remember how a lion has a big mane? Yeah. Here's something I never thought I would see in a convent. Wherever I go, I grab my prayer books and I grab my blackberry. <laughs> Sister Joseph Andrew uses email to stay connected to new recruits. I mean, if a young woman is really looking at this, she immediately wants to know, is there a family spirit here? From what I see, there sure is. Every day after lunch, the sisters do anything from play field hockey or soccer or basketball. Um, obviously, they always have to wear their habits. Uh, they just pull them up a little bit and put their sneakers on. And let me tell you something, these sisters are competitive. It can take up to nine years to become a nun. I sit down with the sisters in training known as postulants. They've only been here five months and haven't yet earned their veil. How has the transition been? Has it been easy? Has it been difficult? Um, it was hard for us to leave our families, to leave our family home. You miss your families, but what about your iPods? You know, <laughs> what about? It was, it was actually a great relief not to have my cell phone on anymore. And there's just so many more valuable things than just, I have to check my Facebook page, you know? <laughs> I mean, don't you sometimes miss your tweezers? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's expecting you to, like, come to chapel at 5.30 looking. <laughs> <laughs> then I talked to the next level of nuns called the novices. The vow of poverty, the, I mean, kind of extreme, huh? There's a noise, a constant noise that starts to gnaw at the human soul. I just desperately needed the silence that comes with religious life. And part of poverty is silence. And the vow of chastity? What's beautiful about the vow of chastity of not having sex or not getting married is that it doesn't mean that you, don't, that you love less. It means you love more. And I'm not, not sexual here. I'm talking about really knowing someone, knowing their heart. Once sisters have taken their final vows, they wear a black veil. What are the misconceptions about sisters and nuns out there? That we all have a ruler in our pocket? <laughs> <laughs> Mother Assumpta is one of the founders of this convent. 
You've been in this life since you were 17 years old. Have you ever, ever um, missed the opportunity to have children? I have to say, um, no, I haven't. You know, I think every woman is called to be a mother, you know, physically. But, you know, God called me to this, and, and this is what I want to be, or spiritual mother. Anybody else have stories about what they were doing before? I was a pharmacist. I had a good job. I was making money, and it was a good career. But I would look at my things, and I would think that at the end of my life, it wouldn't matter to me how much I had. Six months ago, I was working at a fast food restaurant and <laughs> paying my way through rent and just worrying about how am I going to pay my electric so I can have heat. And <laughs> uh, I was engaged at one time um, after a while and realized, whoa, I do not want to be here. But there was a longing in my heart, even as I was dating. And I just, for some reason, knew that that was not going to satisfy me. For a long time, I was living the American dream. I had a beautiful home on a lake. I had a closet full of designer clothes, handbags, and shoes, and anything a girl could ever want. Well, joining us from the Sisters of the Dominican Convent in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Sister Maria, Sister Maria Catherine, and behind them, the newest Sisters of the Convent who've all been there less than a year. Hello, sisters. Hi, Oprah. <laughs> I'm learning so much, and our whole audience didn't know this either, so I was feeling kind of ignorant and almost embarrassed to say I didn't know that the habit meant that it was your wedding dress and that you were married to Christ. I also thought that you had to be a virgin to be a nun. We all thought you had to be a virgin and that you couldn't have lived in the world and had pocketbooks, like you just told <laughs> us. Sister <laughs> Maria. Well, you know, Oprah, if, if there are any young women out there that are interested in the religious life and um, they happen to have had sex, is it possible if they could enter the convent? Yes, it's possible because they would have to, they're for a few reasons. They'd have to prove that they've been living a chaste life prior to entering. Uh -huh. they, would, they would also be committed to living chastely for the rest of their lives. Um, we heard so you say, though, that you gave up uh, an extravagant lifestyle to be a nun. So you joined well, I, at age 31. Why is that? I mean, I had a nice life. I won't, and I enjoyed it. I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed my life, but it was a, it was very, un, very much on a natural level. It was very superficial, and very, just empty. So I was looking for more. And, what and were I you doing asking, before? What were you doing? What business were you in? I was in the car business. I was the um, chief financial officer for three car dealerships in New York. And now you're a nun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who would have thought it? it, it God is so good, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Sister Marie Catherine, why did you uh, choose this life? You know, Oprah, I told my parents when I joined the convent at 27, I had suspected for about five years that I had a religious vocation, but I was terrified. And after five years of trying to pretend that I didn't have a vocation, I just ran out of ways to run. I thought, you know, if I date the right man, if I, if I get the best career I possibly can, then that will be enough for me. But after all the beautiful Catholic men that I dated who were amazing, I realized they would never be enough. And after I got an incredible job where I got to travel, I had my laptop and my high heels, <laughs> and that wasn't enough either. And when I realized that, I thought, I ha it's time. I just have to go and try it. Wow. I would say that one of the best things about being a nun is sensible shoes. 
deal with this every day. Get that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> What happens when you break a vow? I would almost <laughs> reply to that. I mean, when you break a vow, it's almost, it, that sounds like um, we have rules, like, you yes, know, like you, have you rules. break it and you're going to get punished, like sent to your room or something. Like if you go to Target and buy something. <laughs> <laughs> um, You've broken that vow of poverty and you just bought something. I mean, you know, I don't know. For me, like, like, I guess you would say that it's an integrated way of life. And I would say even in married life, women, in a sense, have a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They can't just gratify every sexual desire. They can't just go wherever they want when they want to go places. And they have to, in a sense, be spendthrifts so that they can support their family. So religious life is meant to mirror an integrated human life of giving yourself to the other. So to break a vow is like saying you're not living integrated. You're almost lying to yourself. So you're uh -huh. inflicting your own punishment on yourself. Okay, and I think I in a that. sense is, if you know you're cheating on your husband, or if you know you're doing this, yeah. you're wreaking damage on yourself and maybe on others. But Sister Mary Samuel, this isn't for every woman. Who would you say that is, is most? You know, our culture is, is certainly a very challenging culture to live in. It's very secular, very materialistic. Yeah. Uh, but our and Lord- Getting more so. Yeah, getting more so. You know, and the challenging for young people in our schools and what they're bombarded with is, uh, you know, it makes it very different for families to raise their children in this environment yeah. too. So, all our life is a journey toward God. And our life as religious uh, is a more intimate journey that we have allowed ourselves that time by freeing ourselves from material things through the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. One of the things that surprised me, I think the perception of sisters and nuns is that they lead these very strict existences. And the response that I got from so many of the women whom I met, they had successful lives and careers, but they never felt like they could be skinny enough or um, consume enough. They always felt this underlying insecurity and they wanted more out of life. And so in a way, rather than being very strict, their lives are actually much more liberating. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much to the Dominican Sisters of Mary for letting us inside your home and uh, letting us uh, experience for just a little bit what it's like to be you. Really, it's a look inside that we've never seen. Thanks, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful, but we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.